Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. As devoted listeners know, I'm Katie Lazarus. And more importantly, that sometimes I get the privilege of um, having guests come back on. And we've done it with David Diggs, who you may know from Hamilton, um, to Nate Silver, who I still look at as one of the uh, greatest predictors because uh, for politics. And I just like 538 because I think they do a really thoughtful, innovative approach to news. And today is no exception. I brought Jay Period back. We had him on the live show and I wanted to get more of a sense of what he does um, and be able to share that with you all. Um, Jay Period has been heralded by Source Magazine, New York Magazine, Rolling Stone and the New York Times. Rolling Stone refers to him as a musical guru and Questlove calls him the most creative mixtape producer of all time. Questlove um, works with him all the time, Questlove of the Roots um, or the Jimmy Fallon show for people who just like have never listened to music. Um, but Questlove and Lin-Manuel Miranda and Jay Period all work together to produce the Hamilton mixtape, um, which is the number one album out right now. So I wanted to hear a little more about his history um, as a DJ, producer, and remixer. Without further ado, here's my interview with the one and only Jay Period. So I wanted I wanted to do a follow-up interview with you because I felt like First of all, on, on in the live interviews, what makes them so fun is that they are genuinely improvised. But the challenge there is then, you know, I didn't get to set up what you do. And part of that is because I'd actually like to hear from you what you do. So what is a DJ? Like, I feel like I hear that all the time. There's DJ Baby School in Soho and DJ in the same way that like, oh, you're a doula and you live in Park Slope, get in line. You're you know, an entrepreneur or a founder in Silicon Valley, get in line. You're a lawyer in D.C. Like, what is a DJ? Man, um, I, I think the definition has definitely changed as it has become, you know, more easily accessible to everyone. I think technology has made it and, you know, the iPhone has made it so that we live in what Rich Nichols, you know, rest in peace, used to call shuffle culture, yeah. which basically means, you know, it's no longer albums that are curated for our listening experience. It's a bunch of songs that we have to curate for ourselves. So suddenly everyone feels like they're a DJ. And that, you know, combined with the technology, which allows anybody with a computer to quote unquote DJ, means right. that everyone is trying to DJ now. In my opinion, what a DJ is, is a, a curator of sound and somebody that kind of controls the ebb and flow and energy of how we, you know, receive music. So best example being in a club where you want people to dance and then there's a breath and then you want them to dance and you're kind of raising the level again and then there's a breath and there's sort of a, an ebb and flow to what a real DJ does. Um, and that's lost, I think, in this generation in a lot of ways, but you know it when you hear the real thing. So I, I want to go in sort of the Maslow hier hierarchy of needs, you know, the psychologist kind of, but I'm going to use that as an example where f for him, he would talk about, you know, you need shelter and food before you can be self-actualized and self-actualized would be sort of the highest calling. And, and maybe someone like Clara Barton or MLK Jr. would be self-actualized. And we all aspire to get there. And I'm, I'm going to use that as a metaphor really actually to talk about sort of the the steps of a DJ versus so I'm, I want to look at like having an ear and hand-eye coordination mm -hmm. and then you know get up to the part of like what separates a skilled craftsman to and an, and an artist mm -hmm. um, so everyone can hear music but some people I feel can hear it better than others or are hearing different things than others and as a kid you were obsessed with music 
And I was. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's profound because like it's one of the few things that if you just take a room of babies, let's say you have 12 babies, 11 of them are going to be moving around. And then there's going to be one of them that's like genuinely dancing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and you're like, wait, I don't understand. <laughs> it's like you can't crawl. <laughs> well, I, I think music but you can twerk. Yeah. I think music is its own language. I mean, really, in a lot of ways. And I learned that language early because my dad used to make everything into a song. I mean, he was himself a songwriter and a folk musician before he became a teacher. Um, you know, and both of those streams are in the work that I do now. But you know, everything became a song. There was a, a melody or something that, you know, a situation recalled for him and he would sing a song about it. And I find myself doing that now with my daughter, which is crazy. And she's also becoming obsessed with music, you know, in, in a similar way, which is great. But I think it is a language. I think it's a way of, of understanding the world just as any other kind of languages. So I think that's the first building block there in sort of what made me into me. And it's it's such a fascinating thing because sometimes I'll look at it as a math equation, you know, and it makes perfect sense that you would say it's a language because in the same way that kids, if you want them to learn other languages, the best time is when they're babies. Mm -hmm. And it becomes much harder when you start translating when you're older. Like I, um, I mean, just statistically, it doesn't mean that you can't. Right. But it really does. No, but you learn language differently after age seven than you do before age seven. It's like the difference between a native language and a foreign language. Yeah. And I think the same is true of music. I mean, my dad would put me up on the drum set, you know, during their band practice and, you know, and things like that. And I think that got ingrained in me from a very early age. And can you remember, like, what you heard? Um, well, from my, from different members of my family, I got different things. So from my dad, I got folk music, um, Simon and Garfunkel, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Peter, Paul and Mary. From my mom, who, you know, famously used to sneak out of her parents' house in Newark and go up to the Apollo in Harlem. I, I got Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. Um, and, you know, there was that combination. And then from my sister, who was five years older, I got Led Zeppelin and Fishbone and the Red Hot Chili Peppers and, you know, Bad Brains. And so there were these three streams of, of music that are all very different. And then when I was about maybe six or seven years old, still before, you know, that impressionable age was when I discovered hip hop. And so, you know, hip hop became this umbrella for all these kinds of music to fit, you know, under for me in my in my experience. And I think what's interesting with hip hop is that Okay, so then you're combining all of the, or integrating is really the, the mm -hmm. best way to look at it because it, it comes from within, but the ability to be a, a poet as much as a writer. So there's like an artistry there, um, as well as like having fun and dancing. I can't explain, but it's just sort of, it's the, it's the kismet of all of these different skill sets that somehow seem to like fuse together. Well, I, I often call hip hop the super genre because okay. it is a genre that encapsulates all the other genres. Like hip hop can take classical music, jazz, folk, rock, anything yeah. and chop it apart and make it into hip hop. It's sort of like you can make a Frankenstein version of any other kind of music with hip hop. So it has a, a superior ability in that way to borrow from other genres and, and, and make them better. Yes. And like, I want to go back a little bit in time to your childhood to dancing, mm -hmm. um, because I think the other part of a DJ, so like part of it is ear and listening and just genuinely like sopping up every, I don't want to say every genre, because it sounds like you did not listen to country. And I love Emmylou Harris, and I'm sorry <laughs> that she wasn't part of your childhood, but she can be now. <laughs> and even Kenny and Dolly have some great tunes, so don't give all of them <laughs> up. Um, but 
but because you clearly, you know, had this love affair with with music, I also wanted to talk about the. I wasn't kidding about sort of the hand-eye coordination and the the tactile nature of mm -hmm. scratching. And I was curious, what if any role dancing and then basketball played? Dancing uh, played a huge role, really, for me. My sort of first experience. And you want to talk about ballet because you were on point <laughs> in the Nutcracker. No, I am on point, <laughs> but not in the ballet sense. Um, no, I I was, you know taking a cardboard box like I saw in the movie, you know, in the movies and going to the park and breakdancing, you know, with, you know, young friends of mine at that time. And there was, you know, for me, I think the roots of how I DJ yeah. comes entirely from dancing because as a dancer, you understand that ebb and flow of energy. And it's in some ways very tactile and physical. You can dance your heart out and then your body needs a break. So you take a breath and then you go back into it and you kind of build yourself up. And then the other thing, is the way songs transition one to the next is is all about the rhythmic movement of how your body naturally works. So there's a way to do that that is the right way where it just flows into the next move. And as a dancer, you carry in the same way as the DJ is carrying into the next song. And as a break dancer, you're picking what your next move is. So even when I brought up ballet as someone who did grow up dancing yes. um, in both ballet and a modern dance company, like you don't have, you don't, choose your movements as much that they are chosen for you and that isn't itself can be an art form but but as a break dancer you are choosing what you're doing next well in some ways i mean i was less of a traditional break dancer than okay. i was kind of responding to the rhythms in the music and and you know my first version of producing in the sense that i now isolate sounds would be picking a certain instrument in the song and moving to that instrument and feeling the bass line was always my favorite and i would love to move to the bass line in a particular way and I definitely think all of that carried over, you know, as I started DJing. Um, and basketball, also, there's a sort of rhythmic nature to that. Total, a stop and start. Sure. And also just like a flow of movement and, and, and the way that you're, you're, I mean, literally the way your limbs kind of like maneuver the basketball and move. You know, Michael Jordan being the best example of the sort of Who's you know, that? I've never heard ballet of dancer meets amazing basketball player. And, you know, I think both of those things, I mean, or skateboarding for me was another yeah. one which I was, you know, heavy into when I was a kid. And, and all of those things had a rhythm and a movement. You know, Lupe Fiasco made a song, Kick Push, yeah. that's built on the rhythm of, like, pushing your foot off the ground and then, you know, sliding on the skateboard and then pushing your foot, you know, kick and push. So all of those things have that kind of thing. And, I mean, in some ways, if you really want to get macro about it, it's, that's everywhere in life. You know, Bob Marley used to talk about the rhythm of working. Oh, and I that see. reggae music came from the rhythm of working with the earth. Oh, and interesting. That, yeah, okay. and that there literally is a carryover from that into the kind of music that he made. So part of what I love about your work is that you're both an individual artist. You spend a lot of time on your own going through all of these songs and music and curating them and interviews. But you're also, there's this, you know, writer-performer aspect, and you're part of a community. And I was just thinking when you were talking about breakdancing and basketball, like as an outsider – and I don't know if this is true, but it seems like you can just do a game of pickup with anyone. It doesn't really matter. You can just show up at the, you know, and if you're good enough, you can play with with the other guys or girls, hopefully. Um, and same with, you know, being a DJ in some ways in that you're at a party and there's all these people who show up or you're at a club and you don't really necessarily know the people in the crowd. And there's a community aspect to that. And I just see this beautiful bridge in you. Is that is that true or am I just projecting this? On? No, I, I think that, you know, as a kid going to the, you know, the court and playing in pickup games, 
you definitely are exposed to different kinds of people. I think going to the park and break dancing, you're exposed to different kinds of people. I think DJing parties with people that come from different backgrounds than yourself, you're exposed to different kinds of people. And in hip hop, my experience has been that it's really a meritocracy. Like if you have skills and it's sort of like the basketball court in that way, if you have skills, they will judge you differently and, it, and not based on what you look like. They'll judge you based on your understanding of the culture. Um, and really it is true in pickup basketball as well as in hip hop. And, you know, you're exposed to these people, but it's also an, an opportunity to relate to them on a, on a different level than you would normally if you just saw them on the street. So I'm a little wary of meritocracy um, analogies because I sometimes, I, without knowing your field specifically, but in terms of resources and circumstances for different people, but in terms of you know race and ethnicity, that's certainly something that you personally know from that your skills were able to speak for themselves and you didn't have to worry and say like, okay, I'm white, I'm Jewish, I'm very tall, I'm a really good break dancer, will they accept me as a DJ? I mean, I, I think, I wouldn't say it's a pure meritocracy, obviously, but all I mean by that is that you're, you're in those forums, you're judged based on, on your skill and your understanding of the culture above other things. Yes. And that is unique you know, in my experience, to other, you know, parts of life. Yes. So, you know. And parts of the music industry. Yeah. I mean, I've never had the experience of DJing a party and having someone come up and see me, and if I'm rocking the party, yeah. them judging the way I look in any way other than like, oh, okay. You know, and they yes. kind of keep it moving. Yes, absolutely. And, and if anything, it just broadens that person's right. mind to get their head out of their ass. Um I just took mine out and it was amazing. Um, I want to talk about your artistry specifically. What do you feel separates you? Because I know um, you've been described as a musical documentarian and in that sense, a journalist as well as an artist. Um, I think the biggest compliment to you is that all of the artists that you work with love what you do. And considering you're sampling their work and their interviews they're in such a raw, vulnerable position because you don't necessarily know what Q-Tip or Nas or Lauren Hill or Mary Jo Blige or Tupac were feeling when they did that interview or what that song actually necessarily meant to them the day that they recorded it. And yet, all of these artists love working with you and do so again and again and try to find other ways. And so to me, that seems like this just gorgeous compliment that you're doing more than a Valentine. You're creating something new that feels in some ways... A collaboration that happens perhaps um, just as one kindred spirit to another. Yeah. And, and, you know, the amazing part about that experience for me has been that almost every one of these artists that I've done this, you know, collaboration, quote unquote, with that's, you know, that kind of love letter that you're talking about from one kindred spirit to another has then led to a real relationship with that artist because there's something in what I do that they maybe can't you know i wouldn't say they see themselves in but they can see me in it and they see my understanding of their work in it and that's a, i think a sacred bond in some ways with with these artists especially ones like a lauren hill who often feels misunderstood or a q-tip who often feels misunderstood that you know i'm approaching it from the perspective of a fan and someone that really really loves you know what they do and i apply this you know extreme amount of care and you know, sensitivity to it when I'm doing it. So I think that's part of why it's led to these relationships. I mean, as far as what I do, I like to think of myself as a storyteller 
um, who tell stories through music. I know, but now every like every marketing um, person will say like, "I'm a storyteller," True. and like I'm like, "You're selling Velveeta," and I totally appreciate that you like Velveeta. I mean, every kid on the street will call themselves a DJ, but yeah. you know the real know what the real you know exactly. is yeah. and and that that is a subtlety that you know could be frustrating except for the fact that I don't really care what any of them think like it. I'm doing it for a different kind of reason and that's where I think I earn the artist's respect and appreciation because they can hear it in what I'm doing and to the uninitiated or the uneducated if they don't understand it it's just because they're ignorant and they don't understand it but people that truly understand it and get it if they appreciate it, then I've done my job and I'm happy. But I also think because you're sampling in historical context as, you know, I mean, it, it is incredible that you're able to sort of step outside of the box. And I think part of it is just because you've been sopping up and sponging up music since you were a kid. You're able to look at this person's work on its own merit and then also put it in the context of the times. And I think that's why um, when you were called a musical documentarian, or you're calling yourself a storyteller, same difference. It's you have a beginning, middle, and end to each piece of work. And I think that's really, um, to me as an outsider or someone who listens to you, it's that's what I get out of it, that that the piece stands on itself because there is a story, an arc. Yeah, I mean, and I think that, you know, in my experience, everything fits into its, its historical context in a, a unique way. And somebody like John Legend... You know, if he's remaking civil rights protest songs in, you know, 2011, then it resonates in a different way based on what's going on now. And so, you know, I like to call forth the voices from history and and put them in a context of today to see what, you know, that speaks to and what it says to have those voices resonate alongside of John Legend in 2011 um, or even now with the work that I'm doing. Um, I, I think let's that, talk about that because you yeah. worked with John Legend. Mm hmm. Um, and tell me how you guys uh, connected. Um, I was called in by uh, Sony Records, his, his uh, I've never heard of it record company, to um, to basically take all of the songs from this Wake Up project that John Legend did in collaboration with The Roots. Um, so it was um, covers of civil rights protest songs. And just to give some context to people, you also work all the time or often. Um, you collaborate with um, Black Thought and um, Amir Questlove. Yes, so I, I, I work. I've worked with the Roots um, really consistently since 2006, and, and increasingly in the last couple of years. And so there's a tremendous amount of trust there. So you know, the starting point for that is them turning over to me all of the recording sessions from that album and all the stems and every individual musical part, and saying, "Okay, J. Period, go and make your version of the album," which by itself is an amazing thing because they're turning over their work in its rawest form and saying okay now go remake this into something borrowing bits and pieces from history and going and taking the original versions of these songs we're doing covers of and make these hybrids that make them resonate even more powerfully because you're drawing in on that historical context and so you know when you're singing a Nina Simone song now, but you're drawing in Nina Simone at, in, in some kind of a harmony or duet, like that gives it a whole other level of power. And, you know, that was the amazing part of that opportunity. And, you know, with that opportunity, I feel like there's a tremendous amount of responsibility I have to, to do that justice. Yes. So, you know, I'm approaching these with a lot of weight 
and and I feel that weight when I'm making them, and I want people to feel it when they're listening to them. And have you already done the Declare Yourself work with Norman Lear before? Yes. This, um, so it sounds like you've been doing. Um, maybe you could tell people a little bit about you know that project. It was in part to get out the vote, and also Norman Lear touring around his own personal. Um, copy of the Declaration <laughs> of yes. Independence. Um, Maybe he should drop it off at Donald Trump's <laughs> house <laughs> since he should freaking read it. Norman um, <laughs> Norman bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence at auction, which was found um, sandwiched between a, a, a picture in the back of the frame in some yard sale in the South. I mean, this is a true story. And he decided that rather than put it in a museum, he wanted to tour it around the country. And so he hired a bunch of deaf poets from HBO and, and um, you had worked with deaf poets. I had not before oh, that. Oh, I thought you were so part of the, the. That's how I met all those guys. Fascinating. So okay, I it. was called in um, as a musical director after Norman sort of had me audition by making a track that would be the theme song for this, which borrowed from, uh, I think it was uh, Paul Simon's Fifty Ways to Leave Your Lover drums and Jefferson um, Airplane White Rabbit, and then put Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech over it and and sort of mixed it. And Norman heard it and he was like, you're the guy. And then I toured around the country for a whole year and we registered two million kids to vote from that. So that was definitely the first kind of in that direction. But, you know, again, I don't I don't really think of myself as a as a political person. If I'm an activist, it's more towards the truth that I identify and wanting to put that out there. So, you know, whether it's the John Legend Project or the Messengers, you know, which is Bob Marley and Bob Dylan and Fela Kuti. Talk about that project a little bit. So that one, I was called in by this artist named Kanon, who at the time was sort of completely unknown. He later went on to do Waving Flag and had the World Cup theme song and this huge Coca-Cola campaign. But um, his three favorite artists were Fela Kuti, Bob Marley, and Bob Dylan. And he's like, I'd love to put these three together but I don't know how. And I was like, that sounds insane. Let's do it. Yes. <laughs> and I went home and I sat on this idea for about a week and I, and it occurred to me that the one thing they all have in common is that they're all messengers. And so I came back to him with this concept of the messengers where I, we would tell his story being from Somalia, you know, immigrating to America by way of these stories of Bob Marley, Fela Kuti and Bob Dylan. And the most amazing part was finding all of the similarities in their stories. Um, Fela Kuti, for instance, who, you know, not as many people knew, um, came to America during sort of James Brown's reign, heard yes. James Brown, and, you know, previously had been making all sort of African rhythm music, went back and combined James Brown with that style of music to create Afrobeat, a whole genre. Bob Marley, again, you know, reggae before him sounded very differently. He came to America during the sort of civil rights era and heard that and then went back and created the brand of reggae that we know as Bob Marley's brand of reggae. So it was, you know, it's sort of exposure across cultures that actually made these guys sound. And Kanon is coming from Somalia to America. Um, and it's a sort of similar story. And, you know, hip hop, as evidenced by, you know, Hamilton and Lin-Manuel, is an amazing vehicle for telling these kinds of stories. Yep. Um, and it you know lends itself to, to incorporating all these bits and pieces from all these different things, and that's what you know I've tried to do in these in these mixtapes, and you know find a larger meaning in these smaller stories and, and drawing on historical context just to make it you know mean more. It's interesting that you don't consider yourself a political person, and I guess for me like the personal is political. To borrow that quote, that how we live our lives is the greatest testament to what we really believe. Like you know I can vote 
uh, very quote-unquote liberal on an issue, but am I practicing what I'm preaching? And I see in, in your life and in your work you do. Um, so to me that is political. Um, but I also wanted to ask like that project with Norman Lear then led to doing America Divided. Mm -hmm. um, and I wanted to ask like, if it's not for political reasons that you're doing that, is that for the money to be working on, you know, TV shows and um, you also do movies and Tony Hawk videos and things like that? I mean, I think if something speaks to me and feels true to me, then I respond to it and I want to be a part of it. So America Divided is looking at all of the ways in which, you know, impoverished peoples in America are, are, are dealt an unfair hand, I guess, you know, whether it's education or school to prison pipeline or housing or all these other things i think increasingly there's a narrative um and i'm actually writing a piece uh, about this and have a song coming out this month about this which um sort of talks about to quote Rhymefest, who's the rapper on the song we're pointing fingers at each other and we're missing the point in other words love that it. love it you know we're we are being sort of fed this this narrative that we are divided and in reality, you know, we are not divided amongst ourselves. Yes. We're just being fed that narrative to keep us divided. Absolutely. And, and in fact, you know, to keep the disenfranchised disenfranchised. So I want to share a clip of your work, um, Miranda, just to show an example of, of how your work speaks to these issues. And this is something you produced um, with Rhymefest and Exhibit. that we are challenged to do is to keep this movement moving. There is power in unity and there's power in numbers. We pointing fingers at each other, steady missing the point. I got a homie serving time just for rolling the joint. Who got the power over your life? Is it the whites or the corpse that paid Congress that gave them the rights? They got cameras on every corner. Why they so that is a song called Miranda featuring Rhymefest and Exhibit, which is part of uh, a project called Rise Up, a music inspired by America Divided, which is coming out uh, this month. I, I want to encourage people to go check out your website. It's J. J period.com. J P E R I O D.com. And um, from there, they can find out where to find you on Twitter, on Facebook, on YouTube, um, and stalk you just personally, and also um, find out how to get some of your beautiful mixtapes including your own that's come, dropping pretty soon right uh well my album actually um not even my mixtape um my album is going to be coming out hopefully by spring or summer of this year okay so wait what's the difference between an album and a mixtape um in this case my album is referring to uh, a project which is all original music that i have composed with a lot of the artists from the playlist retreat um and a bunch of other exceptionally talented folks um mixtapes for me are more my kind of exploration of other people's work, you know, remixing it and telling their stories. Uh, this album is really me telling my story musically. Well, all right. People can go to jperiod.com to check out your mixtapes um, featuring everyone from James Brown and um, I, Michael Jackson mm -hmm. um, to, you know, Nas Q-Tip, Lauryn Hill. Um, and I, I want to, because you practice what you preach and because politics um, are involved in everyone's workplace, I want to talk about that because there's something that I find particularly impressive about you, and that is something that you are exceptionally good at navigating. You are exceptionally good at navigating a lot of very big personalities, valuing people's artistry, and also making sure to stay true to your own. Um, I, I had, as I, I mentioned in the sort of stage show, uh, my original interaction with Lauren Hill was really powerful in that um, 
she sort of said no at first. Well, and you had met her through her husband. Yeah. Who, he's not officially her husband, but they have had um, five children together. Uh-huh. And um, they obviously have a very strong bond. And, and he had, you know, said you can contact her. Um, did he suggest that you should contact her? Uh, he sort of said, it's not my thing, but if you want to contact her, here's her information. Yeah. Um, and, and she had said no at first. And, and you know, when I sort of came back and said, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway, I think it was one of those moments where my belief in what I was doing superseded everything else. And she saw that. And that was kind of the beginning of our conversation when I sort of stood my ground. And I think that's been my experience in part, you know, I got this from growing up in Los Angeles and, you know, going to a school where there were a lot of famous people's kids yeah. and not making a big deal about it and and knowing to not make a big deal about it. Well, know. and knowing that they are kids just like you at, at the end of the day. Right. You know, they are just like you. They have greater opportunities in many ways because they have um, power and leverage and what I call cultural capital um, and money. And, and those things are real. But otherwise... Everything else is the same. Well, and They're also going to the bathroom the same way you are. Although, who knows if they wash their hands and put the down? <laughs> I mean, the the other thing is that in a lot of those cases, I saw the the down the sort of the downside, the ugly side of it for those kids, hmm. and that changed my perspective. Also, having empathy for for what's projected onto them. Yeah, and 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 I think. You know, the reality is that whether you're talking about Lauren Hill or, um, you know, Q-Tip or, or any of these folks, there is something projected on them from the outside world. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's not something that, you know, any sane person wants to try to live up to. Yes. And, you know, there's blowback if they want to go their own way. But, you know, I respect that. And, and I've gone my own way. Yeah. And I think that those, you know, type of folks respect that about me. And it's part of what's led to these relationships that I have with people where, you know, I do stand my ground and, and, and I am my own person and they identify that. And, you know, there's a lot of other rules about operating in this industry that I, I follow, you know, such as not asking for things, you know, and, and, and not being yeah. that guy, which is a, 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 an important part of it. And um, when you say not asking for things, meaning um, knowing that what you're doing is okay to do and I'm just going to do it anyways and see what happens after or apologize after or what do you mean by no, that? No, I mean literally not asking anyone for anything. So, you know, when you have people who are used to having everyone in their, in their universe yes. come to them and, and ask for something and take you want to be the person that doesn't ever do that. So, yes. for example, I would never, you know, go to any of the brands, the clothing companies, the record, you know, companies and, and ask for anything. I would just go around and bring mixtapes. And what I would find was that in giving something to them and not asking for anything, they would bestow, you know, gifts yes. upon me that I had not asked for. And I, I, I took note of that because it's the same principle as... If you're the guy that's always calling and asking for something, eventually they will stop answering the phone. But if you're calling and you have something for them, they're going to answer the phone every time. Yeah. So I'm also, and I'm, I'm again going to be somebody who's really wary of generalizations. So like, yes, I empathize so much with so many um, kids, particularly as someone who comes from a family where people were enormously successful. Um, and things are projected onto me all the time that um, and I projected things onto myself that I constantly felt like I cannot live up to this. Um, and that kind of um, fear doesn't help you um, self-actualize. So, yes, I do absolutely empathize 
um, particularly with children who didn't choose to, you know, have a famous parent or something like that. But I'm also wary about generalizations because there are a lot of famous people who use their fame for good use, such as Norman Lear. And there are a lot of people who don't use their fame for good use and might um, actually uh, take advantage of it. So have you ever experienced that? I mean, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of that in in this industry, I mean, in the entertainment industry in general. I think, you know, one of the kind of paradoxes of all of this is that artists don't create to become famous, at least not good artists. No, I don't know anyone who does it that way. They create to express some, themselves, yes. express some kind of a feeling. And the byproduct of expressing a feeling that everyone can relate to is that, you know, it will make you famous and then it will change the nature of how your expressions are received. Yes. So I see this all the time, you know, with people that I know and then have known that have gone from being unknown to being very well known and people respond to that in different ways. And it really has nothing to do with your art. It has to do with what kind of person you are. Yes. And, you know, Steve Carell, you know, talks about how he didn't get famous until he was 40. And so by that point in time, he already had gone through sort of the roller coaster ride of life and appreciated his fame in a different way and was humble about it in a different way. And I mean, I think that's definitely true, you know, in, in anybody. I think it's so true. I think a lot of times when someone's like, oh, money makes you an obnoxious person, I'm like, that person was obnoxious before. You just didn't want anything from them. You just didn't know that they existed. You know, like you didn't cover. But and I couldn't I really feel this connection um, to people of all levels of success because they're all in the same boat that we are. I mean, somewhere Halle Berry's got turned down for a part. And she's annoyed. And I do empathize with that part of her. You know, like there's just wherever you are on the continuum, you know, they're, they're, you're still human is what you're talking about. I, I think. mean, in the, in the DJ world, competition is a real part of it in hip hop, especially. Yeah. So let's talk about that because you guys do these battles and I want to hear about that. Like, what is it like competing uh, against each other? I mean, I'm not necessarily a battle DJ. Um, that's a whole sort of separate stream where guys are physically on stage, you know, battling each other. They're but... just like shoving turntables at each other. <laughs> no, I mean, they're sort of scratch battles, <laughs> and it's more of like a, a, their technical ability being tested. Um, I mean, when I'm talking about battling and competition is, is more something in hip-hop that's a larger theme, and that is sort of being original. Yes. I mean, the the the, you know, original hip-hop artists were measured by their originality. That is not as much true anymore. Now everyone wants to replicate the previous hit and, and so forth. But, you know, I approach my work from that notion of originality is king in hip-hop. And so I've always been trying to do something outside of the lines of other DJs, and, and I'm not really battling anybody else. I'm battling myself. But it's so fascinating to hear as an outsider because, you know, initially when... I think of most DJs that I know, and, and I, uh, again, I keep you in a separate category because I've had the privilege of knowing your work for so long and, and enjoying it. But, you know, when I think about DJs, I think, okay, they're taking someone else's work. That can't be an art form. And the truth is, is then now through you, I've gotten to know all these other DJs, at least in terms of their work. And I see when it is an art form and when it's not. But it is just interesting. Again, I want to echo to people who aren't DJs to understand that you're not just... Um, remixing someone else's work you're choosing where things go in a particular context and you're putting it in a context well i also would say that 
it's interesting to note that in every other art form, you know, borrowing is seen as an acceptable portion of that art form. If you are a writer and you credit other writers, you can borrow portions of their work as long as they're credited. If you are a painter or if you're Andy Warhol, you can paint, you know, a Campbell soup can or otherwise, and you can borrow, you can make collage art, and it's considered art. I disagree with you. I feel like there are people who revere Andy Warhol, and there are just as many people who think, like, oh, you know, that was... Um, he's really good at distilling the essence of a culture, but is he an artist really? You know, and the same and with plagiarizing, like that's a big deal. Well, I'm so, not talking about plagiarizing. I'm talking about if you quote someone's work, sure, then you and you credit them, it's seen as legitimate. If absolutely. you make collage art oh, out no, of other right. people's things, it's seen as legitimate. But as a DJ, it's seen as illegitimate if you're just mixing records together. So there's a different standard that's used and applied to that. And same thing with mixtapes, which is the you know universe that I've existed in for so many years is that there are these things that are seen as illegitimate because you're borrowing and you know they don't understand that it's a new art that's being created out of old art but all art is new art created out of old art it's no, that's just- absolutely right and I am working on a book and there are moments when I'm like why am I re uh, formulating something someone else has already said better. And so the question is, can I add to what this person said? And in the case of Shakespeare, the answer is no. Um, but, <laughs> you know, that that you know is certainly always a question before I write something down. What am I, what am I seeing here that adds? Not merely different, but what adds? And that's what you're saying that you're doing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think that I would, I would, you know, consider myself an artist. And it's even taken some convincing of people that know my work convincing me that I'm an artist because I didn't think of yes. myself that way originally. But, you know, started to realize that I was adding to the discourse and I was taking things and changing them and making them into something new. And it was therefore giving them new meaning. And, you know, what is art if not that? Like recontextualizing for new meaning. So even with all of this validation from the greatest artists in your field so even even having tribe called quest and um you know i, I mean this is sorry to, you know lauren hill nas q like even having these people say thank you to you you still questioned whether you're an artist yeah absolutely um and in some ways it's it's because i measure by a different standard um in in some ways it's because I just am perpetually setting the bar higher and higher for myself. And as in, you should. Yeah. But I mean, in other ways, there's something to, you know, this childhood fantasy I have of making, you know, an album that can be on store shelves. And that fantasy is outdated, quite frankly, because, you know, nothing is on store shelves anymore. It's in a digital store, you know, and, and you know, someone is downloading it. So there's a part of it that is just, I think, a leftover remnant from my childhood of what I always imagined the pinnacle would be and how to get there. And I think with mixtapes, you know, the the hard part was that even though it was recognized by the artists and recognized by the labels, if it wasn't cleared and it wasn't out in stores and it wasn't something that everyone could get, it felt illegitimate to me in some kind of way. And so, you know, that's the crazy part about the Hamilton mixtape is that suddenly I'm doing exactly the same thing I've done all along in terms of the creative approach. Completely. But it's Hamilton. So every single thing is suddenly, you know, as soon as Lynn, you know, loves it, it's approved, you know, and, and, it, and yeah. it goes to this other realm. And it's just been fascinating for me to watch because it legitimizes this art form in a way that I've you know, wanted to legitimize it, but haven't had the leverage necessarily to do for many years. And that's why it comes back to what I was saying about the meritocracy part that like 
when you get these opportunities, it's just a different, it enables you to create on such a different level. Like I was listening to Amir in an interview with Alec Baldwin, and I know you're not going to say anything. That's totally fine because you guys are really good friends. But he was talking about how he wanted to go into the Lauren Michaels meetings to hear about how people become, you know, what the SNL writers, how they come up with their sketches. And I was so outraged because as a comedian, you're like, yeah, all of us wish we could do that. And that's why I've been doing comedy for 25 years. But just because like you're good at X and you're a celebrity, you have more access and more privilege and liberty to not only do that, but to ask yourself to say, huh, can I do this? And then to go out and ask for it. But I want to be like, how dare you? You know better. And I know he knows better. But I mean, um, I think that's just his sort of rabid curiosity about everything. Like Amir is the ultimate collector of information and artifacts. Completely. And, you know, I I don't want to confuse him with the, you know, kids of famous journalists and now kids of famous comedians who get those special internships and get to take the job for $25,000 when other people can't afford it. I mean, listen, that that is always going to be there. And I will tell you that I'm someone who grew up, you know, in a school. I was the son of the headmaster of of a school in Southern California. and, And all I wanted after seeing, you know, many years of nepotism was to go as far away from that as possible and so I moved to New York literally to go to a place where I knew no one and no one knew my dad and to do it on my own and in a world where you know the fact that I went to Stanford is irrelevant to anyone in hip hop. I've never put that on a resume because no one cares. Yes. And if anything, it would just look obnoxious for me to do it. Yes. So I don't, you know, and, and who my dad is, no one cares. So, yeah. you know, that's to me, again, what I mean by meritocracy. It's that you're being judged by your approach and your skills and, and, and whether you can bring it. And it's, you know, it's a, it's the same on the basketball court, on the dance floor. It's the same in as stand a DJ. up. It's the same in anything. It's like, theater. can yeah. you, can you bring it? And, you know, part of that question is how serious are you about your art and, and how much respect do you have for the art form that, that you're going to try and bring something new to it and not just be, you know, regurgitating the same things that somebody else has done before you. And so, you know, in that way, I think that stream of competition has been through everything I've done. I mean, anybody that knows me knows I am highly competitive. Yes. But I'm not competing against anybody else. Like, I'm just trying to, like, knock the out of the park (laughs) so with that in mind where you're like constantly wanting to evolve as an artist which is sort of what I was alluding to when I said you should because you your art has developed so much over the years and it's really um fantastically fun to listen to but at the same time you need to make a living and how do you do that as a DJ particularly now that like technology has made it that if someone doesn't have the ear that you do when they're hiring they may just say, okay, I'm going to hire this two-year-old who just went to DJ school in Soho, <laughs> and they are ready. Um, how does a DJ make a living? I mean, the real answer is that I'm not just a DJ, and you, and you can't necessarily by just being a DJ. So my DJing has led me to an understanding of music, which you know means breaking it down, remixing it, and then figuring out how to make my own music. And so that's led to you know doing music for film doing music for tv um i was the music supervisor for the you know first three seasons at the barclay center for the brooklyn nets and brought my approach to that um you know and the dr j movie yes and i scored the dr j movie so my relationship with the roots has led to an incredible working relationship with james poiser who's this um, you know a grammy winning songwriter so i can now go to him and say hey i've got this idea I want it to feel like this, play it for him, and then he'll just create something original and new, and then I can build around that. So, you know, doing that, um, you know, also I've done, you know, theme song for NBA Inside Stuff by way of that same, you know, Brooklyn Nets relationship. 
and then um, the theme song for America Divided as well. And there's a whole Tony other strand. Hawk, yeah. The skaters video. Yeah, I did music for DJ Hero. I did Tony Hawk's uh, video game. I mean, there's so many things that you have to be juggling to be able to do this for a living. I think that's the part that nobody really realizes is I'm actually doing about 18 things at once. And being and, a live DJ too, does that pay? Uh, yeah, well, it depends on where and for whom. Yeah. I mean, when I do gigs, you know, in a club in you know, the East Village, like I'm doing tonight, no, you know, yeah. but, but if I'm doing something with the roots, yes. And, and how do you know how much to ask for? Um, I mean, it, it really depends on who you're doing it for and, yeah. and what the context is. So, you know, my rate ranges greatly based on if I know the other guy that's paying me and I want to give him a break or, you know, if it's like a corporate entity totally. that is bringing me in to do something. Um, and then in other, you know, forms, uh, I mean, not other forms, other venues, I, I perform with Black Thought of the Roots uh, as a sort of solo uh, act that we call the live mixtape, yes. which is where I do what I do on a mixtape live on stage with him. And that um, is something that we're going to be doing a lot more of in the coming year. Um, and then I have another form of that um, called Remixing the Narrative, which I've done for the Kellogg Foundation a couple of times in the last six months. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, okay. you, you know, it's I'm going to come to tears. So I'm going to try not to. But when the Smithsonian National Museum of African-American history launched and the reason I say tears is because I you know grew up in D.C. and the idea that it is finally now that a museum is um, thank goodness emerged in a city which has long been heralded as it should be for having a, a large middle class population an upper class you name it there are blocks on every um, range of the spectrum and I would say that the underclass existing there um, is is due to our systemic you know, racism and social stratification, but there's also this beauty of growing up in a city where you see that when someone is given an opportunity, they will, for the most part, succeed. And so I was just very sad that, that it's taken so long. However, it is beautiful, and you got to be part of that. Um, and was that with the Kellogg Foundation? Yes, that was by way of, of America Divided um, and the Kellogg Foundation, and we did a, a performance called um, The Live Mixtape Remixing the Narrative, where I, I took sort of civil rights protest music and other songs from throughout, you know, black musical history and remix them live on stage and had performers like Pharaoh Monch and M1 from Dead Prez and Rhyme Fest and um, a singer named Candace Springs, amazing singer on Blue Note, um, all come and perform. So Candace did Strange Fruit and Inner City Blues. And I had, um, you know, a Duke Ellington sample turn into a beat that, that you know, Black Sheep, uh, Drez from Black Sheep was performing over. And then we did that again um, in a different iteration at the Kellogg Foundation's Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Conference in uh, Carlsbad in December. And, and now it's looking like that's going to really turn into a whole kind of thing we're doing with them. And they have this notion, you know, of remixing the narrative. And that is, you know, not accepting the given narrative, like this, this divisive narrative. Yes. And, and, you know, music, what better art form to sort of penetrate people's consciousness and spirits than Absolutely. through music. And so in the same way that I've tried to tell these stories through, you know, through music and in some ways sneak them in on the back of the music. Like when you're dancing and you're moving, you're not realizing what you're taking in. Um, I've seen this with Hamilton where you find these kids singing along to these beautiful melodies and then suddenly they realize what they're singing about and they've learned this this lesson at the same time. So, you know, we're, we're trying to do that now, um, taking it to communities around the country and, and performing it and, you know, trying to penetrate people's consciousness in that way with this different narrative, you know, the narrative that, that is how we see the world rather than what we're being fed.
Absolutely. And the kinesthetic experience of music enables it to be so profound the world over. I mean, it was crazy the first time I saw Ethiopians rapping. And I was like, they didn't grow up with this, <laughs> you know? And they didn't even know, like, they couldn't understand the English wasn't their first language or even second or third, but they, they got it. And that is just, I think that it seeps through you. I mean, there's a reason why hip-hop has become the, the, the musical language of places like Cuba yes. and South Africa and, you know, Israel and Palestine. Yes. Like, you know, there, there's something to hip-hop and the way that you can take from your culture and then adapt it in this powerful way and put a beat to it and then speak your truth in poetry that makes it resonate with people. And, you know, that's, that's the hip-hop that I know. You know, the, the, the simplistic, you know, mumble rap kind of hip-hop that people hear on the radio and what most people that don't listen to this kind of music know as hip-hop um, is a very limited view of what this art form is. What do you do with the uncertainty? I um, saw this great 45-minute um, documentary, and I really want everyone to see it, and it's about the hip-hop retreat with DJ Jazzy Jeff. And the reason I want everyone, whatever field you're in, to see it is because that kind of collaboration needs to happen everywhere. It is. I. It was just so enthralling to see. Um, and I want to talk about it and he hear from you about it. But I also just loved in it. One of the questions you brought up with your peers is that, um, you know, we're, we're on a ladder. When you're an artist, uh, you you literally <laughs> uh, figuratively, whatever you want to call it, you your money comes from whatever the last thing you did is. And it's really scary and it's really hard. And it's part of it is the the artistic. Can I evolve? Uh, can I evolve as an artist? But there's also, a, you know, there is no floor. And that's scary. Um, and I wanted to hear how you deal with that uncertainty. Do you meditate? Mm. Do you know <laughs> what is it that you do to um, en enable you to pick yourself up in those dark moments? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, Jeff has this quote that I love where he says, you know, the, the best and worst part about being an artist is that there's no ceiling, but there's no floor. And, you know, I think that that gathering and his just amazing insight into th that side of the experience of being an artist has given all of us this sort of network that in some ways feels like a safety net you know and has led to incredible collaborations and the ability to call people for things that you don't know about and learn and and, and evolve and and more than that and beyond that in some ways a new version of what the music business could look like I, I want to just interrupt for one second only to explain to people who might not know DJ Jazzy Jeff um, was probably first known to you um, as part of DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. Um, and he also is should be known for I think he was an original scratcher. Uh, yeah, well, he's one of the original scratchers. He's definitely invented several versions of, of the scratch. But, um, you know, most famously for being on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and being Will Smith's partner. Parents don't um, just understand. Yeah, parents just don't understand. Won the first so ever nice. rap Grammy. Um, so, you know, Jeff is an, an institution. And he's somebody that, you know, has gone his own way his entire career. He's never benefited from his association with Will. He's just done his thing. And, you know, that's something that we all look up to. And, and Jeff has also built this incredible network of people who, you know, the Playlist Retreat is more than just a gathering of talented artists. It's a gathering of talented artists hand-selected by Jeff, both for being leaders in their field and being good people. So, you know, that is part of that safety net, you know, feeling that you get when you're in that group. And, and all of us look forward the whole year to that gathering. And now it's expanding into other forms. And, you know, we're actually about to sort of uh, 
announce another sort of form of that partnership, which is going to allow more people to be involved. And they won't have to sleep on bunk beds on top of each <laughs> other. I love that you guys were like crushed into these little bunk beds in these like sort of trailer park homes at this beautiful home yep. in, in Delaware. And I also just liked, you know, our generation, you and I, we're the bridge of the digital divide. Like we're the only generation where email did not exist mm -hmm. and then suddenly it did. Mm -hmm. So we know how to make and create and live without technology, but also um, know how to use it. And I loved seeing these, you know, the older guys learning from the young and the younger guys yep. learning from the old. It was such a beautiful synchronicity yeah. um, going on there. Yeah. And it's it, again, it's one of my favorite things that happens every year. And um, right now we're um, really trying to figure out ways to expand that concept. And, and, and I think in the coming months we will be uh, announcing more of that. What do you do with the, the work that hasn't come to be? And I'm speaking specifically about, you know, your work with Tupac um, and Mary J. Blige. Um, well, that's an excellent question, too. Um, you know, there there is a, a patience required for doing this that somehow have to, has to extend beyond your view of the horizon um, with certain projects. Um, the project I did for Mary J. Blige was by Mary J. Blige herself received as one of the greatest things she's ever heard, and she wanted it to be her greatest hits album. Unfortunately, the record label did not want to clear all the samples, so it led to this sort of you know, problem for me of this beautiful work of art not ever coming out. So there are still conversations going about how to make that thing come to life. You know, again, something that was before seen as illegitimate by way of new platforms can suddenly become legitimate. So it may show up on Apple Music or, you know, or some other platform. The Tupac project um, is going to come out. It's just it needs to be connected to the right kind of thing, you know, um, and that conversation is also going on now. The the great and horrible part of that is because I try to do all these things the right way. So respectful of an artist who's alive by working with that artist and respectful of an artist that's not alive by working with their estate. So we went to the estate and brought it to them and they heard it and were moved to tears by it. And, you know, we had put out one song from that with their permission, which was a remix of Dear Mama I did, when the play that this mixtape was associated with sort of crashed and burned. And so it no longer made sense to release it. So, you know, we've been talking to them about just finding that next thing that will allow the estate to benefit from the release of this music. And I just want it to be out into the world, especially because nobody's voice is more missing from the conversation right now about what's going on in this country than Tupac's. He and actually has a, a beautiful book of poetry that I really liked. I don't know if you've read it, but... I mean, he's an incredible voice. He he has um, some of the, the most amazing insight on why the situation for poor people exists in the way yes. that it does in this country and um, and articulates it incredibly well. And, and people don't know that. I mean, he's like, he went to, you know, performing arts high school and was a drama major. And I mean, he really is an incredible artist. So I really hope that that project comes out because Tupac has sort of two sides. There's a sort of gangster side that, yeah. you know, is sort of pushed out onto the world. And then there's this conscientious, you know, smart, thoughtful side. And what I did was to take all of that sort of thoughtful side and put it into a mixtape so that people could understand that whole side of, of who he was. And in fairness, he pushed out that other side as well. Sure. So. And that's what that's what sold. <laughs> yeah. So and he chose to sell it. Right. Yes. You can choose not to. Um, I I wanted to ask because I, I 
you know, part of the question with the uncertainty, you know, being able to go on this retreat, which I think you guys refer to as the Xavier School for Gifted and Talented. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, gives this tremendous validation. You don't get to actually go to a graduate school and meet other people like you. You don't have an Olympics that everyone, you know, can cheer you on. And here is this special um, microcosm where you get to see the other feral people that are like yourself and you're like oh my god yeah you know it's beautiful um, so I can see that that would help with my next question but I wanted to find out the other things you do to help with this and that is to actually have fun because the irony of being a performer and you know doing like the roots picnic or when Spike Lee does this gorgeous gathering the day after Prince's death and you're called at 10 a.m. to come on in and and create the music for these people to mourn and grieve but also celebrate um, his coming home. Um, how how do you feel fun and how are you able to enjoy yourself? You know, you've been doing this. This is your 10th year anniversary, even though you've been doing this much longer. <laughs> um, and I'm glad you're the 10 year anniversary album is coming out. But, you know, how, how do you keep it fun for you? Um, I mean, that part is easy because I really, really love this and I love doing it. So it's always fun. Um, I'm not in a position where I'm I'm forced to do things that I don't believe in. I get to choose what I want to do, and what I want to work on. So work never really feels like work. I mean, there are certainly parts of it that are excruciating, yeah. but the creative part is never that. Um, so, you know, that is fun for me. Um, I'm again, because of my competitive nature, whenever I'm challenged, I really enjoy it. So every time I have to get on stage with the roots who are, you know, 30 years, 20 years of experience, you know, as performers, and I got to keep up with those guys and there's no mistakes allowed, you know, to quote rock him. That's really fun for me. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you know, I still like to get on the basketball court and, and play, um, you know, as somebody who likes to tell stories, I also love to watch stories. So, you know, movies are sort of my, my vacation from life. Um, and I, I, I have them on in the background all day as well as, you know, going to them. But, um, you know, I really I have so much fun with this because it's challenging and because it's something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I want to thank you for for coming back and talking to me again, because I just wanted, you know, I I speak to people of all different fields, but when it's a journalist or a comedian or an actor, I assume that my listeners know what they do. And I wanted to make sure that everyone got to hear the, the multiple pieces and factors in being a DJ, both live and then as a producer and remixer and everything that you do. And I'm so proud of your work and, and really enjoy it. So thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay. That's it for this episode of Employee of the Month. Thank you to Russ and Daughters. Thank you to Alex Seiner for editing this together. And thanks to all of you. And definitely check into the website because um, we have Edie Falco and Zadie Smith coming up at the live shows if you're uh, here in New York in the winter and much more exciting news. See you soon.